So your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven is actually, when it's prayed, I think with the correct intent, is actually a cry of the heart. In my life, I want you to reign supreme. I want you to be the final authority in and over everything. And when you do that, I want to help and assist your kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. But I don't expect you to sprinkle magic fairy dust over some pumpkin and turn it into a carriage. I want you to use me. Empower me through your Holy Spirit, which you say that you have done to go out and bring the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. It's a cry of the heart. It's a prayer of desire. I want this and I want it so much that I'm willing to give for it. It's desire intertwined with surrender. So for four consecutive summers, 2006, 2007, 2008, and 2009, I had the privilege of coaching a pretty uh, elite bas in a pretty elite basketball league. Uh, this league, again, was a summer league comprised of players who were currently playing for the University of Iowa State or were going to be uh, coming in to play for Iowa State, players who are currently playing uh, for Drake University or who were coming in to play for uh, Drake University, uh, who are currently playing professional basketball overseas, guys who are hoping to play uh, professional basketball overseas, and then a number of uh, high-level junior college players, some guys from small colleges, and then the top of the top high school players here uh, in central Iowa. So for four years, I got to coach in that league. To give it a little bit of context, uh, some of the notable alumni, if you will, from that league are guys who played in that league uh, a time or two or maybe more than that. Uh, Kyle Korver, who's a longtime uh, NBA player, has made multiple NBA All-Star teams. Harrison Barnes, uh, most of you probably, if you follow basketball, know who that is. He played uh, in that league. Tyrese Halliburton, who was just uh, in contention last year for NBA Rookie of the Year, played in this league. Uh, Wes Johnson, an absolute, uh, was the fourth overall pick in the NBA draft a uh, number of years ago. So, Good players, good players. Now, each year, uh, there was an application process. The Iowa State and Drake players were automatically in uh, in the league. But other than that, there was an application process. So they essentially just had to fill out a form. It wasn't anything complex. They filled out a form. We'd kind of compile it. And then the coaches would sit down uh, before the season began, a month or so, and we would draft players. There were a certain amount of spots on each team. Uh, I believe we had six teams each year with a max of 15 spots available, so 90 players. Uh, I think I did the math on that right. So 90 players. The first year that I coached, we had 146 applications. Uh, so that means that of 146 players, all of whom, uh, for the most part anyway, have a legitimate reason to be in that league, there were going to be 56 guys that didn't get an opportunity to play. That's a pretty significant uh, amount, of, amount of guys. So it was a great league. I absolutely loved it. Again, it was a privilege to be able uh, to coach in it. My team did win the championship one year. So just saying, we, we lost in the championship another year, so I had a good, good run in there. So uh, in 2015, so much uh, long after I had retired, um, a friend of mine who had been a, a longtime coach in the league, he actually took over as commissioner of the league. Uh, he uh, decided and was able to, to run it. And so he also, as commissioner of this league, he, that wasn't his full-time job by any stretch, he did a lot of other work, um, I guess, within the YMCA and within the sort of the basketball world. Great guy, and he loved to, to help uh, kids out, especially up-and-coming basketball players who kind of needed to find their way. 
So one time, uh, he was over uh, at the Grub, John R. Grub, YMCA, and I believe, I'm not sure exactly what he was doing over there, but he was in the gym, and he uh, was a guy shooting baskets in the gym that he had never met before, uh, and he's a pretty outgoing guy, so he went over and introduced himself, and he uh, met this kid, and this kid's name was Vic Fuller. And uh, he kind of started to learn a little bit of Vic's story pretty quickly, that Vic had, uh, was originally from Cincinnati, but had a really bad, really bad home life, um, a lot of things going against him, and then had made some mistakes and done some things he shouldn't have done in that situation, had uh, left Cincinnati and had ended up coming here to Central Iowa to Woodward Academy, and uh, had actually done really well there, had straightened himself out in a lot of ways, had graduated uh, from Woodward Academy and did so well there that they actually uh, asked him if every year after he graduated, if every year he would come back and speak to the other students to sort of inspire them and show them what was possible. So my friend met him. He had graduated Woodward and he'd gotten his life sort of on track, uh, but he wanted to do more. He wanted, he had this dream to play college basketball. He really wanted to play college basketball. Now, here's what's interesting. He never played high school basketball. He never made the team in high school. A lot of that had to do with his home situation, how transient his family was, the fact that he moved, the fact that he was at Woodward. All these different situations kind of conspired against him uh, that he was unable to play high school basketball. So my friend and, and Vic got to know each other a little bit more as they would interact and, and see each other over time. And eventually Vic found out uh, that my friend was in charge of this basketball league, uh, which at that time was only a couple months away from starting and wanting to play college basketball, he was very curious, like, is it possible? Can I get into this league somehow? And keep in mind, of course, again, every year there are guys who are legitimate players who have either college experience or are great high school players or whatever who don't get in this league. This kid had never even played high school basketball. And so my friends said, well, we've actually already drafted the teams, uh, so there's nearly nothing I can do about that. It's already set, but... Uh, every, every year, because it's in the summer, there are, there are teams from week to week sometimes that are short players because guys are gone for different reasons. And so if you wanted to show up uh, on a given night, a league night, and you want to be there with your stuff, uh, if a team is short, we can see about getting you in into a game. And so he said, okay. Uh, I'll do that. I'll, I'll be there. I'll show up. And you know, with anybody, you're never sure. Like, when you tell them you might get in and that kind of thing, there's, you never know if they're actually going to show up or if they're just saying that. So uh, the first night rolls around. The first night of the league rolls around. My friend gets there early because he's the commissioner. He gets there to set everything up and kind of prepare. And, and Vic's already there. He's already there with his stuff, and he's waiting and the first night, by far, has the, 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 is the best attended night of the summer. Everybody's excited. Everybody's going to be there. There's a ton of, we usually used to pack the house in terms of fan attendance because they get to see players that they know from television in a very up-close setting. And so it's a big night. And so Vic showed up with all of his gear, and through three games that night, he sat there, and every team was more than full, so he didn't get an opportunity to play. So you'd think that would be, oh, man, that's a bummer, right? So the next league night, which is a few nights later, my friend shows up again early to get things ready, and again, Vic is there with his stuff. And the second night, 
every team had enough players, and he didn't get in again. So you'd think, again, after the second night, most of us would be ridiculously discouraged by that point. But the third night, friend shows up early, and Vic's there again with his stuff. And so it just so happens on the third night, this is before any games have started on the third night, Vic's there, my friend's there, that my friend goes over to talk to the facilities manager. And he just ends up, we would talk to this guy a lot. He was always sitting in the front door. He was kind of like a, I don't know, just a cool guy. We'd always talk to him. And uh, so my friend ends up talking to him. And he says, hey, uh, there was a kid here an hour before I even, like, opened the doors. Or, like, before I got here to check in. And he's like, oh, like, I think it would probably, what is this kid? And he said, described him. Oh, yeah, that was him. And he said, yeah, what's interesting, this is the facilities manager. He's like, is I, I saw him get here. And he's like, and he didn't, nobody dropped him off and he didn't drive a car. He showed up on foot. And so my friend thinks to himself, well, that's impossible. Because where these games are played is over in a little bit southwest Des Moines area. And where this kid, where Vic was staying, is over by the John R. Grubb YMCA. Which is, if I, I Google maps it this week, it's about 11 miles. And so he's like, well, I mean, maybe he got dropped off at the corner or whatever, you know. Something like that. So my friend goes and says, hey, Vic, uh, you know, facilities manager said you showed up on foot. And Vic, said, and Vic kind of looks down, and he's a little sheepish, and he's like, he's like, yeah. Like, you walked here? Yeah. You walked 11 miles here tonight? <laughs> yeah. Did you do that last week? Yeah. Did you do that the week before? Like, yeah, I did. This guy was walking 11 miles one way to a basketball league, hoping that he might get a tiny bit of playing time. Now, we can make sense of that on some level, sort of initially. Like, he tried it once. That's a radical thing. He tried it once, whatever. But he didn't get to play the first week. He didn't get to play the second week. And he's 11 miles. Let's be honest. Most of you wouldn't walk 11 miles if I had $100,000 to give you. You might try, but you wouldn't make it because you haven't walked more than a mile in like 20 years. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. So some of you are like, I think I could. I'm like, I don't think you could. So anyhow. So then my friend says, dude, like that's, we're going to figure something out for you. And so he goes and, and talks and he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a spot on my team and we'll figure it out. And so he does. And so Vic ends up playing the rest of the summer with my friend's team and my friend and him develop even a deeper relationship and he learns more of his story. And so he ends up uh, trying, and he, my friend has a lot of connections, of course, through this league and stuff like that. So he ends up uh, helping him get into NIAC, which is Northern Iowa Area Community College basketball team. Gets him, all right, let's get you in there. Let's enroll you. We'll help you out. We'll do everything for you. So Vic goes. He doesn't make the team. Gets cut. He's never played high school basketball, so keep that in mind. So he comes back and starts working for my friend part-time and working on his game, just grinding. Plays in the Capital City League, that's what it's called, again, the next summer. They help him again, this time get him into Iowa Central Community College. Another great place for, for basketball. I have friends that have played at Nike. I have friends that have played at Iowa Central. He goes out there, doesn't make the team. Gets cut. 
comes back, works part-time for my friend, works on his game again, plays in the same summer league. This time they get him into Marshalltown Community College. Again, another great place. I've had friends that played there, basketball. This time, this time after however many years, I'm losing count even already, he's on track to make the team. He's doing really well when he was involved in a serious car accident and suffered a head injury. He landed him in the hospital for two full weeks. The doctors told him there's absolutely no way you can play this year. So he took the year off, worked for my friend part-time, rehabbed, worked on his game, played in the same summer league. They got him into another junior college, John Wood Junior College. Don't know anybody who played there. Never heard of it until this. This year, he made the team. He played the entire year, did really well academically. At the end of the year, they came to him and said, hey, we kind of did a favor for, you know, these people to help you get in. Here's a connection there. And, and like, you did all right, but honestly, we're, we have to cut you. So he felt like he, he, he played college basketball and he's got this chance and they cut him. So he comes back, <laughs> works the summer place. They get him into another college. Villa Maria, another one I hadn't heard of. He made the team again, played the entire year. There were some issues there. <laughs> Finally, he goes to another college, Oakwood. Oakwood played, was scheduled to play their first game of the season against North Alabama on ESPN. Vic comes off the bench, scores 14 points has three rebounds, three assists, a couple steals. He's playing on ESPN. His family gets to see him play. This kid never played high school basketball. After that first game, career game, their season gets canceled because of COVID. So here's the, here's the awesome upside. He loved it at Oakwood. They loved him. He's still at Oakwood. He'll be playing this year. He's doing incredibly well academically. He's a graphic design major. He's on track to graduate, doing incredibly well. It's quite the story, isn't it? Did I mention that during most of this time he was homeless? Did I mention that part? We're in a series right now called Building the House. And the intent of this series that we began last week is to try to talk about the kind of culture that we want to have here at New Point, the things that are important to us when it comes to building the culture, creating a culture, what we want the atmosphere, the ethos, the essence of this place to be, and what are some of the primary things that we really want to undergird that, to be the structure, the foundation of, of who we are and what we do collectively. Last week, Pastor Jordan kicked off the series by talking about Jesus, which is a good thing to talk about in church. And the sermon was entitled, It's All About Jesus, because it truly is. And you'll notice that we talk about Jesus. We talk, I talked about this a little bit last week in my communion thought, but we talk about Jesus, not God in some abstract sense necessarily, but Jesus, right? Jesus specifically, because Jesus is the one that is personal, that gets into us, that can disrupt in the most beautiful ways. So it's all about Jesus. So today is week two of this series, and today's focus, I guess, if, if you want to call it that, comes from probably the most well-known passage of Scripture, apart from John 3, 16. 
It's found in two places in the Gospels. First one is, most of you are familiar with this part portion, or where this is located in Matthew 6, and also in Luke 11. And it's most commonly known as the Lord's Prayer. The disciples, to set a little bit of a backdrop for this, the disciples come to Jesus, who we know from the Gospels, often withdrew to lonely places to pray. Often. He made it a habit to spend time with the Father, to practice intimacy with the Father. And the disciples have been witness to this, albeit maybe for a semi-short period of time, but they notice something is different about this guy. And of all the questions they could have asked him and maybe did ask him, one that's noted by at least two gospel writers is, teach us how to pray. And he responds with this, again, probably the most famous passage of Scripture outside of John 3.16. And it starts off with a radical statement that I won't go into today, but our Father, who's in heaven, glory, praise, honor, worth, value to your name. And then the next line is the one we're going to focus on today. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And our focus for today to sort of shorten it a little bit is on earth as it is in heaven. It's all about Jesus and on earth as it is in heaven. Now, there are two ways to look at and subsequently pray this specific petition. The first is the way that most people look at it and pray it. It's the way that most people have been subtly taught to look at it and pray it, maybe not explicitly or expressively, but subtly. And it's the way that, in my opinion, is both weak and ineffectual. Strong statement, I know. So why? Why is it that way? Because it's much too abstract and it allows us to disassociate. It's prayed in a manner that's akin to making a wish on your birthday as you blow out your candles or making a wish as you throw a coin into a fountain. It's this sort of your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, recited very sort of perfunctorily, sort of just casually, it's sort of this massive, massive prayer, but it's really not grounded in any sense of anything. We don't really have an idea of what it means or it looks like. But because Jesus taught us to pray it and because we've heard it prayed so many times, we say it. But again, it's like we're making a wish on our birthday as we blow out the candles or we're throwing a coin in a fountain. It ends up being functionally superstitious. And what it conveys, albeit unintentionally, is that we believe that God affects this world by sprinkling magic fairy dust over it when and where he sees fit, and that when he does, things just sort of change. One minute, we can have a pumpkin, and the next, God's transformed it into a beautiful carriage so we can go to the ball. Your kingdom come, your will be done, and the fairy dust sprinkles, right? That's not a good way to think about those lines sort of depersonalize them, to make them an abstraction, to make them so grandiose and so big and sweeping that they actually lose their value. It's not a good way to think about them. It's not a good way to pray about them. Or to pray them, I should say. The second way to think about and pray this specific petition is much more personal. 
much more profound, and it strikes straight to the heart of what Jesus was getting at. This was, after all, this prayer was instructive, meaning he intended his disciples both then and now to pray this way. So in order to help clarify, here's what the second prayer, or I'm sorry, here's what the second way may sound like when prayed with the correct intent. Your kingdom come, I have this on the screen, your kingdom come, your will be done in and through my life as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done in and through my life as it is in heaven. Let's take a step back just for a second and define what's referred to biblically as the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Those are often interchanged. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God, as sort of really a brief definition is this. It's the locale where God reigns supreme and is the final authority in and over everything. If you want to put that one up on the screen. The kingdom of God is the locale where God reigns supreme and is the final authority in and over everything. Now, I chose the word locale over the word location because location, by definition, refers to a very specific place, an actual location on the map. Locale refers to an area, a region, a sort of like, it's a, it's a little bit more mystical in some ways. And I mean that in a good way. Is any place where God reigns supreme and is the final authority in and over everything so your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven is actually, when it's prayed, I think with the correct intent, is actually a cry of the heart. It's a prayer of desire intertwined with surrender. It's your kingdom come, your will be done in and through my life as it is in heaven I want to see it so bad, and I'm willing to step up to the plate. I want your kingdom to come in my life. In my life, I want you to reign supreme. I want you to be the final authority in and over everything. And when you do that, I want to help and assist your kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. But I don't expect you to sprinkle magic fairy dust over some pumpkin and turn it into a carriage. I want you to use me. Empower me through your Holy Spirit, which you say that you have done, to go out and bring the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. It's a cry of the heart. It's a prayer of desire. I want this, and I want it so much that I'm willing to give for it. It's desire intertwined with surrender. With that being said, let's shift gears pretty much straight from first. I don't know if that was first gear. My first gear. To fifth because here's the thing, and we're going to get after it here just for a few minutes. In order to pray this prayer with any sort of sincerity, you have to truly want the kingdom. In order to pray this prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, with any sort of sincerity, you have to truly want the kingdom. Now here's a profound, this is a big truth, and I, it's so big that it's going to even read small on the screen, because I had to use a lot of words. So Here's the truth. It's hard to truly want the kingdom if you don't understand the kingdom. 
And it's hard to understand the kingdom if you won't open yourself up to learn about it and or experience it. And it's hard to open yourself up to learn about it and or experience it if you assume the kingdom is something it's not or you don't recognize the kingdom for what it is. Now, that is a big statement, and I understand that. But you've got to want it, but you can't want it if you don't understand it. You don't understand it because you haven't allowed yourself to. And then what's likely to happen, what's almost guaranteed, is that you actually you, you don't know it when you do see it, and you might think it's this when it's not. And I see that literally every day in Christendom. So for many of us, for many of us, level one of praying this portion of the Lord's Prayer, level one of your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, may be simply indicating to God that you want to learn what the kingdom looks like, that you want to know more of what his will is, and that you want to participate in the fulfillment of it. You might begin praying this prayer simply as... (laughs) Like, just help me learn more. I don't know what the kingdom is. I, I'm told that I'm supposed to pray this. I don't even know what that means, what that looks like. Lord, will you help me? Will you open my eyes so I can see the kingdom for what it is? Will you give me a mind to understand? Will you give me a heart to desire it more? I want to want to, if that makes sense. I want to want the kingdom to come. But I'm going to need a little bit of help. Maybe that's just where you start, and that's okay. God will honor that. But you've got to start somewhere. Shifting gears again. In the natural world, in the natural world, if you have a child, especially a young child, and that child refuses to eat, you know that something is wrong. Right? It's the same in the spiritual world. You are a child of God. And if you, as a child, refuses to eat, refuse to eat, something is wrong. But the difference between the natural and the spiritual in this case is that the more you eat of the kingdom that Jesus offers, the hungrier hungrier you will become. The more you eat of the kingdom Jesus offers, the hungrier you will become. The more that you taste and see that the Lord's food is good, the more you will refuse to settle for lesser things. You won't be able to get enough. And in this area, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When you see that and when you eat of that and you begin to hunger more for it, this is the one area of your life where it is okay to be a glutton where it is okay to be greedy, where it is okay to want more, where it is okay to pray the prayer that Habakkuk prayed that we've talked about here a few times, which is, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I've heard of your deeds. I've heard of the things you did in times past. Bring those things into the now, to the here and now. God, I read stories about your saints. I read about people that were surrendered to you. I don't just want to read about those things. I want to be those things. You can eat and eat and eat and more and more and more, and God wants to give you more and more. It's okay to be greedy. Matthew 5, 6, Jesus talks about this a little bit in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. This word for hunger that he uses here in the Greek, I'm going to put that up on the screen. It's panao. And it has basically three significant connotations. It means to be needy. Metaphorically, to crave ardently. To seek with eager desire. I love that. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who crave ardently, and they don't just crave it, they seek it with eager desire, the kingdom of God, righteousness. And from a primary word, to toil for daily sustenance, it's this understanding, this beautiful, really robust understanding that you need (laughs) the kingdom every day in your life. Not just that it's some sort of base need, but that you also crave it and that you seek it and that you, you want it. So here's my question as we get ready to near our close. Question is, do you hunger and thirst for him? Because it's great for me to get up here and talk about how we want to see his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But it can't be just me. It can't be just Pastor Jordan. It can't be just us that wants that. Because this isn't about us. It's about our church. It's about you guys. So do you hunger and thirst for him? Do you hunger and thirst for his kingdom? Do you at least want to want to hunger and thirst for it? Do you hunger and thirst? You ardently desire and seek eagerly on earth as it is in heaven. Will you go after the kingdom? Will you go after Jesus? Will you go after the presence of God, the power of God? Will you go after all the things that he has available for us, that he promises us? Will you go after those things with at least, at least as much energy as Vic Fuller went after playing college basketball? Will you go after something that is eternal, that has eternal significance as much as a guy went after just playing college basketball, which lasts four years at most, or maybe a few more with the extra COVID years. I mean, this guy did this stuff just so he could play what amounts to honestly kind of low-level college basketball. See, here's the thing. Jesus was opposed to religious performance. There's no doubt. He was opposed to religious performance. He rebuked it regularly for people putting on a show. But what he was not opposed to was effort when it came to seeking him and his presence. And there's a big difference between those two things. He was opposed to performance, to putting on a show, but he was not opposed to effort. In fact, he rewarded effort on a regular basis in the Gospels. Think about the woman with the issue of blood who risked her very life pushing through a crowd just in the hope of touching Jesus that he might heal her. She was healed, if I remember right. Think about when people were so crowded around Jesus that no one could even get to him, that friends carried their paralyzed brother on a mat, cut a hole in someone else's roof, and lowered him down to Jesus. That paralytic walked, didn't he? 
think he was healed. Think about the blind man crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me on the side of the road. And all the religious people told him to shut up, but he wouldn't. I think that guy got sight that day. The list goes on. Jesus is opposed to performance, but he is not opposed to effort. In fact, he rewards effort. And it's talked about all through the scriptures. Jeremiah 29, 13 in the Old Testament. This is two verses later than your refrigerator magnet. It says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Now, it's generally a good idea to never take a promise from the Old Testament and apply it to your life unless it's repeated in the New Testament. Keep that in mind here in a second. Psalm 63, this is David writing. You, God, are my God. Earnestly, oh, there's that word I mentioned earlier. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. How many of you know that we live in a dry and weary land? We live in a spiritual desert for the most part. And the scarier thing, what makes it such a desert, what makes it so scary, is that so many people who are filling churches each Sunday think they have water. They think they have water. But the kind of water they're drinking is actually just that desert mirage. It's not the living water. Remember that thing about the Old Testament. Not usually a good idea to apply a promise there unless you see it repeated, but we do see it repeated many times in the New Testament. And the stories I just mentioned that were guys, people were healed. Also in Hebrews 11. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. But because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. He is the rewarder of those that earnestly seek him. Now, the rewards are not health and wealth and all kinds of prosperity as our culture defines it. <laughs> the rewards are vastly different, but they're much better rewards. And he promises, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. He is the rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. And the power of God, as you're going to hear next Sunday from Mike and Dina, the power of God is on the move in the global church. The presence of God is showing up in amazing, amazing ways in the global church. I, I mean, we could sit here for hours and just tell stories about what's going on. On earth, as it is in heaven, is happening in the global church. In, in ways that would blow your mind. You know, I shared this with a youth group on Wednesday night. The church in China, just to use as an example, has been forced and has been for a while to be almost entirely underground. It's illegal there. You can be killed, imprisoned, all kinds of stuff just for claiming the name Jesus. It's not safe for them to meet. So that in one area that I was, I actually saw a video of this somebody that was over there and took it very uh, discreetly. There's a, a particular local congregation that's sizable in China underground where every morning, every morning, 
not Sunday morning, every morning, they get up at 4.30 a.m. and they meet for two hours every morning, a lot of which is just singing praises to the Lord, reading of scripture, and they do all of that in a cave. Two hours every morning from 4.30 to 6.30. I heard another story about a missionary who sort of snuck into China and videotaped a bit of a service. In this particular service, again, because they're meeting in secret, secretly and they can't be out in the open or in obvious places, they were in this room, and inside this room it was 120 degrees. 120 degrees. And the service lasted for 12 hours. The sermon, which the missionary said it was considered short, was four hours. So when I keep you guys here for a few minutes longer today, than you expected. Just keep perspective. Another story told by another missionary who was invited actually to preach to the underground church in China, had never been there, didn't know what to expect, had heard stories, was honored to be asked. He showed up the first time and he, he walked into a, what he described as a very large room, fairly large room. I would imagine probably this size. It was so packed that people, there were no chairs and it was so packed that people couldn't have sat down anyway. It was literally the packed in like sardines, cliche. They were packed so tight, and his, his back was up against the wall of the room, and he could reach out without stretching. He could reach out like this and touch the front row of people. There were that many people there. The service started at 8.30 a.m. and got over at 7 p.m. With him preaching almost the entire time, the people said, would you come back tomorrow if you'd be so kind and preach again? And he said, yeah, how, what, what time? And 8.30 a.m. to 7 p.m. He said, okay. After the second night, they said, would you come back tomorrow? And what, what would, you, would you preach again to us? For how long? 8.30 a.m. to 7 p.m. What do you want me to preach on? He'd asked them initially. They said, Genesis through Revelation. I can do that. And at first he didn't think anything of it, but it didn't occur to him until the third day of preaching. They were asking him to preach for so long and Genesis through Revelation because not a single person in that packed room had a Bible. Not one. And they were hungry for it. And this was a chance to talk to somebody who knew it. Don't leave. We won't leave. Is it possible that the power of God and the presence of God and on earth as it is in heaven is showing up in the global church because they're hungry? Because they earnestly desire and they seek and they go after it. And they actually believe when you seek first the kingdom of God that you don't have to worry about the other stuff. What does on earth as it is in heaven look like? I think you'll find out a lot of that next week when Mike and Dina come. This is sort of a setup. I think Mike and Dina carry this. I'm going to close with a video. Now it is, it's, a, it's a lengthy video. We'll be about 10 minutes over when it's done. But I think this is worth watching, so you can kind of take a deep breath. You guys could just push pause for one second. Also, when you play it, can you push pause for one second on it? Um, when you play it, if you would, I, I noticed when I was previewing it, it wasn't super loud at the beginning. 
when Dina starts talking, so if you could just make sure, I forgot to mention that. Um, this is, I wanna give just a bit of context, literally less than a minute. This is the story, there's a whole story with um, my wife and I's, I don't even wanna call it relationships, we didn't know them until recently, but with Mike and Dina and how we just came to be, like, like they came to be like some of our heroes, and uh, this story is the story that just wrecked me. I mean, just wrecked me. Um, and so it's, it is, it's about a 19-minute clip. So we're going to just kill the lights, play this. I'll come up and uh, close in prayer when we're done. But I really want you to focus and, and take this in and not look at your watches. So with that being said, go ahead and let's, let's get it rolling. Um, Sunny is my, my, his testimony is one of my favorite testimonies. Um, and uh, we went to an orphanage about four hours away. And we weren't planning on taking any children. In fact, we didn't have enough room here as it was, or staff. And um, we were just going to build relationship and to see what the facility was like. And um, it was one of the poorest orphanages that we had been to. And right when we arrived, um, they took us up this concrete building to the second floor and almost immediately I saw Sonny and he was just a little guy and I thought maybe he was maybe four years old and it ends up I think he was nine at the time and he was he was on a stool sitting on a stool facing the wall and um, he had his hands over his head and he was just kind of rocking like facing the wall and um, I remember seeing him. You know, there's so many kids, there's thousands, but I really saw him. And um, hundreds, there are hundreds at that orphanage. And um, we had a tour of the whole facility, and um, we were there for about four hours. And every time I would see him, he was still sitting in the same position with his hands over his head and I would see the other children come and I realized why he was sitting like this. The other children, the older kids, would um, walk by him the whole time we were there and they would smack him upside the head. I, I realized he was blind and he couldn't see anything and so he was, he never knew when the next blow was coming. So he was just sitting against the wall and kind of rocking and all of a sudden somebody would come up and smack him upside the head or stomp on his foot or punch him in the side. And I couldn't believe what I was watching and he was silent and he just rock and just was silent. And something rose up inside of me and the only word that I heard was enough. And it was like a roar inside of my heart. I was like, enough. And I knew it was God. And um, we didn't have a relationship with this orphanage. And it takes relationship to bring a child home and a contract and all of this. And so um, Mike and I talked. And he was feeling the same thing that I was feeling. And so we just asked him, we said, What's, what is the deal with this child? And they told us that he was blind from birth and that he's autistic. And um, that um, 
and we said we asked uh, is there any possibility of us taking him home to foster him and they said oh yeah you can take him just like that oh yeah you can take him no contract no nothing they just let us walk out with this little nine-year-old boy and so we get in the car and um, somebody's driving for us and Mike and I are in the back seat and we're just like I don't know I think Sunny was maybe our 13th child by this time and um, we're just enamored with him you know he's sitting on Mike's lap and he's just quiet and sweet and just you know we feel we feel good about what has just happened you know we've taken him out and um, Mike and I are smiling to each other, you know, on the four-hour ride back, just like we were bringing our newborn baby home from the hospital. And we get home, and we step foot on the property, and he goes ballistic. He just comes completely unglued, and he starts screaming and squirming and slithering and totally manifesting a demonic spirit and at that time I didn't even know I mean I'd seen uh, and ministered a lot of deliverance by this time um, it had been many years and I'd gone through Pablo Batari's I'd never seen a child manifest demons before and never to this extent uh, if you would just even try to get next to him in prayer or try to pray he would just he would just try and beat you, lash out, scream in a demonic voice, tell you to get away from him. And um, he was no longer the sweet little boy that was in the back of the car. He was like we had unleashed an animal. And he, um, as soon as we got home, he refused to eat. He refused to sleep. He refused to drink anything if he would go to the bathroom, he would go and he would smear it all over the walls. He was infested with worms, so it took like three or four times of treating him with more medicine. It was just infested with worms. And um, he would hit us, he would hit the other children, he would throw toys and he was blind, so he would chuck a toy and we had baby babies at that time. and and he would hurt children and he would bang his head on anything that was hard and just completely self-mutilate. He was scratched raw, he was black and blue and he was dying from malnutrition. We would try to pry his mouth open to get something in and he would just clench his teeth. We took him to the doctor and the doctor said, you can't put a tube in this child, he'll just rip it out. There was no tube feeding him or anything like that. We just had to try our best. And um, this went on for months. He would not sleep at all. And he would get up in the middle of the night and he would trash the place. And so Mike and I finally, we tried a bug hut. We tried a playpen. We tried a crib. We tried a bed. We tried everything we could to get him to sleep. Nothing was working and before we knew it he would have trashed the place again and so finally we put him in between the two of us and we had to sleep with our hands interlocked and him in the middle so that we could, if we fell asleep, we could feel him and he would just kind of slither his way out and he'd punch me in the middle of the night and 
you know, you wake up like, oh, you know, there's Sunny. Good morning. And so um, he he was just a completely broken, tormented, hurting child. And we had people that thought we were crazy for taking him. He wasn't your typical, even autistic child. He was demonized. And everybody was afraid of him. Mike and I and one other staff were the only ones that would even attempt to take care of him. We had other missionaries that left. They said, you have crossed the line. You know, um, you are not qualified to take care of a child like this. I said, I'm the first one to tell you that I'm not qualified. I know better than anybody, you know, my shortcomings. But as soon as my eyes saw him, really saw him, he became my responsibility. You know, I just, we, we've felt that when God highlights somebody, what good was it to do, to say to him, peace be with you. God bless you and go back to our nice home. What would that have done for him? Absolutely nothing. It would not have changed his life at all. We needed to do something. And a lot of times that doing something cost. You know, it may, you can't maybe change a life and sleep through the night. Sleep through the night, change a life. Which one is going to come up weightier? You know, of course. I mean, we were exhausted. And I would be like, God, did I miss it? Am I in over my head? Was this my soul and not my spirit? You know, what? because it was months. So it's, we're not, you're not talking a couple of days. You're talking months and months of this, this behavior and this fatigue from not sleeping at all. And, and so um, I would just say to people, what would you have me do? Send him back. I just said, that's not an option. We just can't do that. Either Jesus died to set him free or he didn't. And I'm going to wait until he gets set free. And so one day he was just completely going off. And we didn't know what to do. And it was late and I was tired. And so we went, I took him downstairs to the playroom. And we had mats on the floor. So I thought, okay, this will be safe. So I put him in my lap and kind of restrained him with my legs and my arms and he was fighting just twisting and fighting me and I was just crying and I said God I don't know what to do you know I don't know what to do with him can you tell me please what to do and I just heard the song how great is our God sing with me I and I just kept hearing it over and over in my mind and I didn't think anything at first until the song kind of just kept getting louder in my mind. And I thought, well, okay, I'll just sing. And so I just began singing over Sunny. How great is our God. And I just began singing. And all of a sudden, it didn't take very long. All of a sudden, I just felt his body for the first time in months. He just began to relax and just soften, you know, just relax. And then all of a sudden, I felt electricity in the room. It was like, I can feel, every time I tell this story, I feel it. My whole body is, I can feel my hair and my face and my arms. But it just felt like the whole body was full of life, full of life, just electric, powerful life. 
And I knew something had come into the room. And so I began just singing and singing louder. And all of a sudden, he's completely relaxed. And I see him go like this, like that. And then I see him go like this. And, and I leaned over and I looked at him and I saw a tear come down this eye. And then a tear come down this eye. And he's like, he's not, he's not cried one time since he'd been at our house, just screamed. And, um, and he's, he begins to cry and he doesn't even realize what's happening. He's like, what is this on my face? And then all of a sudden I hear him and he's going, <laughs> And he just starts weeping, 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 you know, just crying, just, huh, 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 just sobbing tears. And I knew that God was just washing his heart. You know, you could just feel him just, and he, I could feel his body quivering against my chest, you know, like that. It was like gasping for air, crying. And he cried for about 30 or 45 minutes and um, just wept until quietly just, just kind of stopped, completely relaxed, completely relaxed. And um, I heard the song, love lifted me, love lifted me when nothing else could help. Love lifted me. And so I sang that over him. And he just was like a little limp rag doll and just kind of breathed, like sighed, breathed. And, and that was it. And um, I wiped my tears and I wiped his tears and we went to bed. And um, after that day, everything changed. The, I think the next day, I put a banana up to his mouth, and he would always, I mean, he would clench as hard as he could, and it would take, like, several of us to try to pry, and sometimes we'd just have to shove it in the side pockets of his mouth and hope he wouldn't spit it out. But I put a banana up to his mouth, and he went, and he ate the whole thing. And all of us around knew something had happened. And then I gave him a cup of water, and he drank the water. And um, then he started saying, I have to go potty. And he wanted us to take him to the potty, and he started pottying in the potty. It's the first time. He stopped banging his head completely, stopped hurting himself completely. And the last thing was he started sleeping through the night. Remember, he started sleeping better and better. We had, we, when we took him to the doctor, they put him on medication that was supposed to knock out an elephant. And he would still, with the medication, he would only sleep like two hours, maybe, at night. And we started weaning him off the medication. And finally, Mike said, I'm going to go try him downstairs. There was a lot of mosquitoes. And so they set up a tent downstairs. And he slept with Sunny without medicine. And he slept from night until morning. And um, then a few days after that, I don't remember how long it was, we were all in the living room, in the recovery room. And um, he stands up with a huge smile on his face and he just began spinning in circles and he said happy 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 Jesus makes me happy 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 Jesus makes me happy over and over and over and over again hours 
and for months, months, he would just dance and spin and sing. And um, his favorite song was One Way Jesus. And uh, he would just want to listen to that song over and over again, One Way Jesus, One Way Jesus, One Way Jesus. And um, even people in our village, they, they would hear him scream. People would come in and wonder what we were doing to him. We were trying to feed him. And, and he has been one of the greatest testimonies. And people would come in and they would bring other people and they would say, see this child. This is amazing. You know, they, this is truly God. Say ni hao. next week. Oh, next, oh yeah? Is next week their birthday? Tomorrow. Tomorrow? No, I don't think Sonic, so. Let me ask you, did you go to Young Way today? Today. Last time. Tuesday. Did you go? Go. Oh. Did you buy? What kind of cookies did you buy? Oatmeal cookies. Oatmeal cookies. Tomorrow class, tomorrow, tomorrow class. Yes, you have class tomorrow. you have class. That's right. It's nice today. Isn't it a beautiful day? Tomorrow, what His name's Sunny, and he says it's gonna be a sunny day. <laughs> no rain. No rain. No rain in Jesus' name. Amen. Sunshine. Amen. Sunshine. That's how summer that you will go swimming. Yeah, in the yeah, summertime in the you can go swimming. No, that's right. Swimming in the pool. Yeah, swimming in the pool. Big pool. In the big pool. The big swimming pool. is fun. <laughs> so sunny. Baba. What have you been learning in class? What's Miss Nanette teaching you? Nanette's teaching his class. That's good. Baba, tomorrow is Wednesday. Tomorrow's Wednesday. Yes. Yes. Good job. You're keeping up with He other, only used to do Wednesday only echolalia, so he would Tomorrow only Baba's repeat. And now he's just yeah. started answering some questions appropriately. Like if you say, well, you know, what did you do in class? He'll tell you instead of saying, what did you do in class? He would only just repeat. Yes. <laughs> no, we're not going to. Know. Where do they go swimming? We have that little waiting pool over there. Yeah. He likes to talk about washing clothes a lot because if the clothes are washed, then Sunny can help fold clothes and yeah, earn your allowance by folding the clothes. Mm -hmm. Well, we have to make, make money. money. Mm -hmm. Make the money to buy the cookies, right? Cookies are important here. Important everywhere. Yeah. You gotta have cookies. <laughs> We're not gonna go to Taiwan to wash clothes, silly guy. I think I'll just wear them out. No wash clothes. Next week. Next week. Would you guys stand with me? <clears throat> Man, every time. Um, I may not know a lot, but that's, I think, what it looks like when his kingdom comes, when his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. something that I desperately want to see more of 
I'm all for day in and day out, the grind, one foot in front of the other, as Eugene Peterson puts it, a long obedience in the same direction, doing the right. I, I'm all for all of that. I, I, it's incredibly important, and that's most of what our lives will look like. But I also want to see the power of God. <laughs> I want to see on earth as it is in heaven in ways like that. And I love that story because it wasn't instantaneous. It took them months and months and months. I love that line. You can either sleep through the night or you can change your life. So let's just do this. You guys could put on maybe just some like really softer type music. <clears throat> Metallica or something. Probably not. Pastor Jordan's great about the response at the end. I don't really generally do that as a rule, but today I do want to do that. So just simply this, I, <laughs> on earth as it is in heaven, it's what I, what I crave, it's what I pray for, it's what keeps me up at night sometimes in a good way, just hungering for it. And I just <laughs> would, just by a show of hands, I'm going to pray for you, by a show of hands, could I just, if you would raise your hand and say, I want to see that too. I want to see on earth as it is in heaven. I want to see his kingdom come and his will be done, not in some abstract fairy dust way, but in my life in real, tangible, powerful ways. I want to see that. I want to earnestly desire and seek him. I want to, I want to go after him with all I've got. If I have to cut holes in a roof, if I have to push through crowds, if I have to walk 10 miles one way to show up at church, I want to do it. Or maybe... Maybe that's not you yet, and I understand that. Maybe you're not attuned yet with the things of the kingdom, and that's okay. But maybe the other category of people here that would raise their hand this morning would say, I just want to want that. I want to want that. I don't want that right now. I don't know my life is comfortable and nice and whatever, but I want to want that. Just everybody, would you keep your hands up? Either category, would you keep your hands up? I just want more of that. Let me just pray. Jesus, I pray for this church that we would not just be a church of nice people, that we would not just be a church that goes through the motions, but that we would be a dangerous church, a powerful church, that would be a church that's dangerous to the dominion of darkness, that where we go, light shows up, that when people come in here, they can't help but be flooded with light and love and the power of your presence. It's not going to be a one or two person thing. It's a collective effort. So I pray for everybody in this room who has their hands up right now, Holy Spirit, that you would just go and touch hearts and touch minds and change lives. Do whatever you need to do. These hands are hands of surrender. They're hands of willingness. And sometimes they're maybe just hands of I want to want it. But either way, Holy Spirit, take these hearts and start to mold them, start to transform them, teach them the ways of your kingdom. Help us to seek first the kingdom of God. Let nothing stand in the way, no distractions, none of the things of this world. Let us just go after. I pray for every person right now with their hand raised, every person that they would have an encounter with you, a transformative encounter with you that would light their hearts on fire, that they would be so hungry they wouldn't be able to get enough. They would be greedy for the things of the kingdom. I pray that Pastor Jordan and I would be literally inundated and bothered to overflowing with people wanting to talk to us about the kingdom and how it can come here at New Point. That people would be flooding our inboxes with questions about, I feel like the Lord said this to me, and it scares me. <laughs> Could you help me discern some of that? I pray that we would just have a flood of that. 
Just more hunger, more hunger in this room. God, we know that you are the rewarder of those who seek you. So we look forward to seeing your kingdom come more on earth as it is in heaven. I pray for next weekend that there will be powerful encounters, that there will be life transformation, not sin management, not behavior modification, not I'm going to try a little bit harder next week, but life transformation. All of that and then some, all the things that I can't even pray for. (laughs) But Holy Spirit, you intercede on our behalf. Holy Spirit, just light this place on fire. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. Amen.